going to talk about God's correction, which fits with this, doesn't it? Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. So I encourage you at this point, turn to Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. And in case you're interested in knowing, I did cut an hour off my sermon because I know we've had a lot in today. Um, so we'll read it down to an hour today. But we're going to talk about God correcting us. And correction sometimes is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? If you're the, if you're the parent correcting a child, you view it differently than the child does, don't you? If you're the child, you view it, my parents are so mean, I can't believe they would ground me. You hate me, you don't love me, right? We view it differently. It's a matter of perspective. The train chugged its way through Indiana at 24 miles per hour. That doesn't seem like a frightful speed that it, that is until you take into account how long it takes to stop a 6,200 ton train. That's a baby, yelled Robert Moore, the attentive conductor. The engineer, Rodney Lindley, had thought it was a small dog, but the thatch of blonde hair and the colorful clothes made it all clear. It was a baby on the tracks. Emily Marshall, a child of 19 months, was playing on the rails. She had strayed from safety as her mother picked flowers in the garden. It was all chaos and shouting at the controls of the train. The engineer hit the brakes, but there was no way the train could stop short of a disaster. Moore, 49 years old and a Vietnam vet, had to think quickly. He's the, he, he's the conductor. He had to think quickly. What am I going to do? There's a baby on the tracks. He threw open the door, moved along a catwalk at the front of the engine, leaned precariously forward, steadying himself with one arm as Lindley, that's the engineer, continued to pull frantically at the brake. The train slowed about 10 miles per hour, still much too fast. Lindley said, it felt like we were just eating up the rail, going faster and faster. As a great locomotive approached, Emily heard the noise and sensed danger. Now, this is Emily, the 19-month-old. She sat up, imagine the 19-month-old, watched us, the conductor said, for what seemed like an eternity. Then she began to crawl off the rails, but not fast enough. Just as a train was about to go over her, Moore, that's the conductor, at the leading edge of the locomotive, stretched out on one leg as far as he could, and like a field goal kicker, booted the baby over the edge and down the soft embankment. Then he leaped down off the train, picked up the crying child, and comforted her. Emily came out of the near-fatal experience with cuts on her head, a chipped tooth, and a swollen lip. We know how deeply grateful the mother was, remorseful too. But I wonder if that little child truly comprehended how blessed she was that a stranger with a big foot kicked her down a hill. (laughs) She was trying to play. There was a lot of noise. And suddenly something jarred her and sent her tumbling like Jack and Jill. And it hurt. Perspective makes a difference, doesn't it? What seems hurtful from one vantage point can, when seen in full perspective, turn out to be an act of compassion. That's how it is with discipline and correction. Sometimes we have to hurt a little now so we won't hurt a lot later. Some lessons come only through tears. We know this as parents. We also need to know it as children of God. What brand of love would keep that conductor from rescuing a happily playing child on the grounds that a good boot is rude and painful. That wouldn't be loving. 
What brand of love would, keep your, would have kept your parents from scolding you for not doing your homework? Since scolding would have put a damper on a pleasant dinner. As C.S. Lewis points out, the willingness to administer pain to prevent a greater harm is a mark of true love. I want to talk about God, how he lovingly corrects us. And hopefully you're there at Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. The Lord disciplines those he loves. That's what I want to talk about for a moment. Hebrews is written to tell us who brews the coffee. He is. He brews. Okay. He brews the coffee. Not funny. Okay. (laughs) No, seriously. Hebrews is a New Testament letter written to encourage Jewish believers to persevere in the faith. These are Jewish believers who became Christians. It's the first century and they had faced persecution. Later on, we see that Timothy himself had just been set free from prison. In Hebrews 13.3, they're told, remember those who are in prison. Uh, in, Hebrews 13, in Hebrews 10, 32 through 34, it talks about those who have joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. These are Jewish believers who had faced real dangers, Jewish believers who had faced real persecution. And after facing the persecution, after, face, after facing the dangers, they thought it'd be easier just to go back to the old way. It'd be easier just to go back, forget Christ, forget Jesus, forget believing that Jesus is the one and only Messiah. Forget that. This is not fun anymore. I'm going back to the old way. And that's why in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, the writer of Hebrews is, is, is going through saying, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the angels. And then the writer of Hebrews takes Old Testament passages, such as Psalm 110 and others, and he does basically expository sermons. He's exposing the text on them to show the greatness of Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the one and only high priest. Jesus is the one and only Messiah. Jesus is the one and only sin offering. Jesus took care of that. And he is exhorting them. He's encouraging them. Yes, you've faced trials and tribulations. Yes, yes, you've faced hardship. But don't go back. Don't go back. Stay the course. We have that great hall of fame, uh, hall of faith, hall of faith, hall of fame of faith passage in chapter 11. And then we get to Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, the writer, they call this a sermon. It's a, it's a letter structured as a sermon. And in chapter 12, he tells them, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He stayed the course. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And then we get to verses 5 through 11. Look at verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If you're filling in the blanks, that's your second blank or set of blanks. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, he's asking a question, expecting a response of all the sons. If you're a son, your father disciplines you. Guess what? If you're not disciplined, you're not even loved. He's going to make that case. He's quoting from Proverbs 3. 11 through 12 about God's discipline. God is speaking. God is seen as speaking through the proverb. 
What are we to think of the hardships we face in life? I think the writer of the Hebrews is, a, that's what the writer of Hebrews is addressing. The writer of Hebrews brings in this Old Testament passage. Sometimes discipline is punitive. Other times discipline is training, right? Like going through training, studying for a test or, or exercising or, or training for something else that you need. Sometimes it's punitive. Sometimes it's training, And the writer is saying, do not regard the discipline of the Lord lightly. Take it seriously. Don't be weary when reproved by the Lord. The Lord lovingly disciplines us. Verse 6, the Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord chastises every son whom he receives. If the Lord loves us, we will be disciplined and chastised, but for a purpose. Verse 7 sounds strong. The whole section sounds strong. However, the preacher is comparing us with sons of God, and that is a very good thing. We could even say sons and daughters of God. The preacher is comparing us with sons and daughters of God. God loves us enough to discipline us. God loves us enough to build us up. And the point is, God lovingly instructs us. God lovingly disciplines us. Those not disciplined are illegitimate children. Look at verse eight. Look at verse eight. If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. David Jeremiah shares a good story about this. In New Testament times, there could be no more serious charge than to question one's legitimacy. Imagine three boys playing in the courtyard of a wealthy man's estate. They get into some kind of mischief and their father comes out, his face beat red, fire in his eyes, and he drags away two of his sons by the ear. The other boy who is also his son, by a female servant, stands and watches, totally ignored. He has misbehaved too. He even lives on the same estate, but his father doesn't care what he does because he doesn't consider him a true son. How that would have stung. The rejected boy would have learned that a father's indifference is far worse than the momentary pain of chastening. Our earthly fathers discipline us. They lovingly discipline us because they want the best for us in the same thing with the Lord our God. Look at verses nine and 10. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. He's disciplining us for our good, that we may share in his holiness, that we may grow as Christians, that we may grow in holiness. This lesser to greater analogy from the reader's own childhood training shows that it is appropriate for the heavenly father to discipline. And it calls for a response of respect and submission. As a loving father, the Lord always disciplines his children for their good. Then verse 11 the fruit of discipline. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. It does not feel good when we are disciplined. But I can speak as a parent. I think most of you can. It really does hurt us more than it hurts the children, doesn't it? And I think God's emotions are so complex 
that he's, as he's allowing us, permitting us, sometimes causing us to go through hardship, pain, and suffering, he knows it's for our good, but it still brings him pain too. I'm sure that learning piano takes discipline and it's difficult, but later you have a benefit. I've heard that if you're learning guitar, your fingers start to bleed and things like that, but later you have a benefit and you bless others, but it takes discipline. David Jeremiah shares, we should cherish our chastening because it is God's way of saying, you belong to me and I love you. It's God's way of saying, you belong to me and I love you. His discipline may anger us at times, but it will protect us. It will teach us. It will prepare us. This is why the early church theologian Jerome is reported to have said this. The greatest danger of all is when God is no longer angry with us. Because that's saying, you don't belong to me. C.S. Lewis had a lot to say about the pain of discipline. He noted that some of us have a shallow view of God's correcting love. He writes, we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. C.S. Lewis continues, I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed on such lines. But since it's abundantly clear that I don't, and since I have reason to believe nevertheless that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction. As scripture points out, it is for people whom we care nothing about that we demand happiness on any terms. With our friends, our lovers, this is still C.S. Lewis, with our friends, our lovers, our children, we are exacting and would rather see them suffer much than be happy in contemptible and estranging modes. I was reading a Tim Keller sermon the other day, and he shares this illustration from Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot was a missionary. Her husband, Jim Elliot, was martyred by natives in Ecuador in the 1950s, and later she got remarried, and that husband died of cancer, and she wrote many, many good things. She wrote about staying with these farmers who had a lot of sheep. One time every year, the sheep had to be dipped into a big vat of antiseptic, Otherwise, a sheep would be literally eaten alive by parasites and insects. When Elizabeth Elliot watched the process by which these sheep were being put into the vat, she started to feel rather sympathetic to them. Here's how it looked. To paraphrase, she says, one by one, the shepherd would seize the sheep as they struggled to climb out of the vat. If they tried to climb out of the vat on the other side, Mac, the sheepdog, would run around and snarl and snap in their faces to force them back under. If they tried to climb up the ramp toward John the shepherd, he would catch them, spin them around, force them under again, and hold them, ears, eyes, and nose, totally submerged in this antiseptic. Why? So they don't die of parasites and things. Elizabeth Elliot says, as I watched him do this, I realized I'd had many experiences in my life that made me feel very sympathetic to those sheep. A number of times I felt that the great shepherd, the Lord, was doing the very same thing to me. He was holding me underneath. I felt I was drowning. And when I asked, I didn't get a word of explanation. Keller, Timothy Keller says, let me tell you why that metaphor is so good. If I was a shepherd 
And I saw my sheep feeling like, you're killing me, you're killing me. You know you love your sheep, so you'd wanna give them an explanation. So go ahead, just try. Try to give the sheep the explanation. I can guarantee you something, they will not be consoled by anything you say. Why? Because they're sheep and you're a shepherd. It's a different order of reality. Yet if those sheep don't trust that shepherd, they're going to die. The Bible says Jesus is a great shepherd and we're the sheep. Sometimes he does give us some clues of what he's doing. Many times he doesn't. Many times we don't know till later, maybe much, much, much later. Sometimes if he told us, I dare say many times, if he told us, we wouldn't understand. There's an Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk. He asked the Lord for an explanation. The Lord said, if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. Later he tells him, and Habakkuk doesn't believe it. (laughs) That's what happens. But the Lord does discipline those he loves. And his goal is good. It's our holiness. It's our growth. Because God loves us. God loves you. Remember that when you go through trials and tribulations. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you. We thank you for your loving kindness, even though oftentimes, sometimes, maybe right now for some, it doesn't always feel like loving kindness. Sometimes we have to question and we don't get the answers. And Lord God, I do believe it's okay to question. It's okay to say, Lord, what is going on? And maybe you'll give us a hint. We know, though, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And the things revealed belong to us or them at that point and to their sons forever. We know your word says in Corinthians, don't go, belong, but don't go beyond what is written. We just have to trust you. And we see in this passage in Hebrews that you do discipline those you love. But your goal is our holiness. I pray that you would encourage those present today. Encourage us of your great love for us. Encourage us. And I pray that the Holy Spirit give us an amazing sense of your presence and of a peace that passes all understanding. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As they sing and lead us and be thou my vision, the altars are always opened. Maybe there's something you would like prayer with. We would love Love, love to pray with you right now.